Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word that was just read aloud from Luke chapter 15. Thank you for how it reveals to us your heart. And thank you that we could sing out together uh, about our Father in heaven who has good plans for us. Thank you for that song, and it's a chance to worship you. We pray now as, you, as we open your word that you would teach us by your spirit, help us to understand what we read, help us to apply it to our lives. We ask for your help, Lord. We are, are so desperate and needy and dependent, and so we come to you with open hands and say, Lord, have your way this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, hey, good morning once again, everyone, and welcome to FBC. My name's Matt, pastor here, and hey, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, join me in Luke chapter 15, uh, where Wendy just read from, Luke chapter 15. Um, and hey, I also want to thank uh, Noah Lubke for being in the house and leading worship for us this morning. Um, yeah. Thank you, Noah. So good to sing along with you, brother. And Noah's a young man from uh, the great state of Colorado, uh, lives out in Denver, and he's with us for the weekend. And Amber and I actually I know his family well from our time in Colorado uh, over 10 years ago. Um, we knew them, and so it's fun to have Noah here leading us in worship. So. Thanks, brother. We're grateful. Um, and hey, uh, as we continue this morning, again, we're in this month of rest where we said, hey, what if in the month of July as a church, we just tried to, to slow down a little bit and give our kids ministry workers a break? And so our kids are in the room with us this morning. And, and what if we, again, we don't have a men's breakfast this month or a, a women's ministry event this month, and we just kind of slow down in that way and clear the calendar a little bit? And what if we do some teaching on this, this concept of rest? Because we are so busy and our calendars are so full that we need to learn how to practice true Sabbath rest as the people of God. And so Pastor Lee Pilgrim was back in the house for the past two weeks and he kind of kicked off our teaching on that topic and looked at just this biblical foundation for Sabbath and looked at the command to honor the Sabbath that we find in the Old Testament. Uh, that this, this practice that was really practical, right? About, hey, let's clear the calendar. Let's stop for a period of time and simply rest and simply worship and remember that God is God and we are not and God runs the universe and we don't. And so we can take a nap and he's going to keep everything spinning. Um, and I think actually Lee, Lee kind of went easy on us uh, because he said something like, hey, for practicing Sabbath, it could, you know, try to carve out like an hour or two, or it could be like an evening. And he was being really nice and kind about that because really it should be like a 24-hour period. Really it should be like, hey, can we set aside like a day? That's how it used to be in the Old Testament. Take, take a day to say, man, I'm not going to work. I'm not going to run errands. Um, I'm not going to, you know, run crazy around town. I'm just going to be with my family. I'm going to do things that, that, that are, are full of worship and fun and connection with people I love and things that I love, and it's going to refill my heart. And so for the Scrabeck family, what we've been trying to do, we've been trying to implement this like Friday night into Saturday. Friday night to Saturday night is our kind of like Sabbath rest time where we try and clear the calendar. We're not running errands. We're not going to Hobby Lobby shopping for stuff. We're trying just to like be at home, be with people we love. Think of it like a, like a Christmas Eve or a Christmas Day every week. You know, what do you do on Christmas Day? You just 
Slow down, right? You eat good food. You take a nap. You read a book. You spend time with your family. You do something you love to do. It's not time to work. And so in doing that, it's, it's an act of worship and honoring God and good for our souls. Just let the world go on without you. But, hey, rest is more than just stopping, and it's more than just clearing your calendar, and it's more than just not working. We need to consider it on that practical level when we look at our calendars. But also, we need to drill down a little bit into the depths of our hearts and think about at a soul level. When we look into our souls, are we truly resting in God? Are we really experiencing the peace and the contentment and the joy that walking with the Lord brings. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, Pastor John Mark Comer gives a list of indicators that we might not be experiencing the fullness of rest that God desires for us. And he writes out a list of symptoms of hurry sickness, what he calls it. But they're indicators that our lives are moving too fast that we're too hurried, that we're not resting in the Lord. And here's his list. He said, number one, irritability. You get mad, frustrated, annoyed too easily. Little things bother you. And those closest to you have to tiptoe around your ongoing low-grade negativity or anger. Number two, hypersensitivity. All it takes is a minor comment to hurt your feelings, a grumpy email to set you off, or a little turn of events to throw you into an emotional funk and ruin your day. Number three, restlessness, where he says, hey, even if you try to slow down and rest, you can't. You're just buzzing. You can't relax. Number four, workaholism. Or just nonstop activity. You don't know when to stop, how to stop, or maybe you can't slow down. Number five, emotional numbness. You just don't have the capacity to feel another's pain or your own pain. Empathy is a rare feeling for you. Number six, out of order priorities. You feel disconnected from your identity and calling. You're always getting sucked into the tyranny of the urgent, not the important. You're busy, but you feel like you don't have time for what really matters to you most. Number seven, lack of care for your body. You don't have time for the basics, sleep, exercise, healthy food at home. Number eight, escapist behaviors. When we're too tired to do what's life-giving for our souls, we turn to our distraction of choice. Overeating, over-drinking, binge-watching Netflix, browsing social media for hours, surfing the web, you name it. Number nine, slippage of spiritual disciplines. The things that are life-giving for our souls are the first to go rather than our first go-to. So quiet time, scripture in the morning, prayer, Sabbath, worship with the church family on Sunday, a meal with the people you care about, those things get tossed and 10, isolation. You feel disconnected from God, others, and even your own soul. Anybody? Yeah? Am I reading anybody's mail here this morning? Yeah, I think so much of us, uh, so many of us can relate to the things on this list. And so we need to talk about this concept, not just of clearing the calendar, but of true, deep soul rest in the Lord. And so we're going to look at this familiar parable from Luke chapter 15. It's known as the parable of the prodigal son. 
It's a story that, that Jesus told that gives us an example, actually a few examples of restlessness in our human search for peace and fulfillment and joy. I actually preached on this passage about four years ago. So if you were here in the summer of 2019, we talked about this. So you might remember some of this. This was before COVID. Toilet paper was flowing freely in the land. We had not a care in the world. And we were preaching through this passage. So maybe you'll remember some of it. But here's the temptation I want to warn you about. If you're a churchgoer, if you were here then, or if you, you know, grew up in church or whatever, the temptation is to say, oh, I know this story. I know this one, so I'm going to check out or, you know, get my phone out and do something else until church service is over and Noah comes back up and sings us another beautiful song. I'm just going to check out. But my, my invitation to you, especially churchgoer, longtime Christian, someone who's heard this story before, would be, please, don't check out. Please lean in. Because I think there's more here for you than you realize. In fact, there's probably more here for you than anybody else. This story is pointed at you. It's like an arrow pointed directly at the churchgoer, the religious person's heart. It's going to smack us around a little bit and challenge our assumptions about God and relationship with him. So we're leaning heavily on a book called The Prodigal God. It's written by Tim Keller, one of my favorites. We actually have some free copies in the back. It's an orange book that unpacks this parable. So many of his insights have shaped uh, my thought and approach to this text. So, again, credit to him there. We're taking three weeks on it, which, um, again, there's so, so much here. It's so rich. And actually, uh, by being here today on week one, you're actually legally obligated to come back for the next two. <laughs> So I think there's like risk of fine or jail time. If you don't, I don't make the rules. I just wanted you to know about that. So hopefully we'll see you the next few weeks. So with that, all that being said, let's jump in and, and read, read the parable. Wendy got us up to verse 11, so we're going to now jump in. It says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So here's where the story starts. A father with two sons, and we meet one of them, and it's full of, of shocking surprises and twists and situations that would be uh, just unexpected. And we see that right away in verse 12. A man has two sons, and the younger one says to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. To us in modern day, that might not seem that offensive or that big of a deal, but realize this, when a father, the head of an estate, passed away in the ancient world, his wealth and his land would be passed down to his children, especially the oldest son, as an inheritance. But here now, the younger son says, hey, listen up, pops, I don't want to wait for you to die to have your stuff and your money. I want it now. Give me my portion today. And this is really the equivalent of, I wish you were dead. 
I don't care about you. I just want your stuff and your money. Such a request realizes the demand in the ancient world would bring great shame upon this family. It, it would be a blemish. It would, it would bring uh, great suspicion and shame upon this father in a culture that, that highly valued honoring elders, honoring parents. This father truly would have been absolutely justified in beating his son, disowning him for such a request. But instead, the father surprises us and he meets his request. He says, okay. Verse 13, the son leaves home not long after that. The younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. He leaves home. He goes to a barren place. Maybe it was Colorado. Maybe he went a little further. It was the East Coast. He went to a barren land. And he began to be in need. Now the text doesn't tell us how he squandered his wealth. It says wild and reckless living. It doesn't say exactly what that looks like. But we're going to assume he's not just sipping juice boxes and watching Coco Melon on Netflix with some of his buddies, okay? And, and because there's children present, I'll say no more. I'll let you guys fill in the blanks. He squanders his wealth, though, and he hits rock bottom, verse 4, after he had spent everything. There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And we read on, right? And he, he's out of money, and so he gets a job working with pigs, which for, again, a faithful Jew, pigs were considered unclean, Animals. So now he's feeding pigs. He's, he's unclean. He's even longing to eat the food that the pigs are eating. He's dishonored his family. He's squandered his wealth. He's made bad decision after bad decision. And so here we see first this picture of, of a restless son. A son who was restless to leave home. He didn't believe that the good life was home with his father. Instead, he thought the good life was out there somewhere. And that somehow life with his father and in his father's house was keeping him from joy and fulfillment. And so he had to leave. And it led to exhaustion and ruin. And just like him, many of us believe that the good life is somehow out there somewhere, right? It's away from our father. Our father doesn't know what's best for us. Being in his house isn't what's best for us, so I'm going to go out on my own, and we're restless, and we leave home, and what we thought would bring us life actually brings us death and devastation. And that's one reason so many of us might be exhausted today. Because our souls were designed to rest and walk with the Lord himself. And so if we're disconnected from our Father in heaven, we're going to perpetually be in this state of exhaustion, having to care for ourselves and fend for ourselves and try to feed ourselves when our Father at home wants to bless us. Now, it wouldn't be at all unusual for the audience of Jesus' parable, those who are listening to this story, to expect the story to stop here. 
to say, wow, Jesus' parable, it's intended to teach a really simple life lesson. Honor your parents, obey God's word. If not, look what will happen to you. Shame your parents. Reckless living will only bring about hunger and ruin and exhaustion and shame. So honor your parents. It's fitting that we have kids in the room this morning, right? Parents kind of nudging your son or your daughter. Listen up. Honor your parents. Don't bring shame upon the family. Don't embrace sin. Trust the Lord. Now, those points are all true. We should honor our parents. We should trust our Father in heaven, and the good life is found in walking with him. Absolutely. But that's not where Jesus ends the story. That's not actually the main point of the story. Jesus continues. Look at what he says, verse 17. When he, the younger son, came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and went to his father. So the younger son, he's at the end of his rope. He says, I'm out of money. I should go home. I should go back. And he prepares a nice little speech, right? I'm going to go back and I'm going to say to my dad, hey, I've sinned. I'm not even worthy to be called your son. I confess what I've done. I acknowledge it. But, but please just make me like one of your servants. I could have a job. I could have food to eat. And I could get by. But realize, in this culture, again, a son that dishonored his family and squandered his father's wealth had committed a great crime. Legally, there could have been, again, serious consequences, potentially even death. And so he's thinking, hey, my dad won't let me back into the family. No way. But maybe he'll have compassion. Maybe he'll just, like, let me sleep in the shack in the backyard and eat some scraps of food and I'll get by. And so he goes home. It's his best chance at this point, he says. And this is where the story takes a dramatic turn. It says, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, father, here's a speech. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father interrupts the speech. He said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. It's a beautiful picture, right? While the father, or while the son, excuse me, was still a long way off, his father saw him. And it gives the impression that the father is eager for his son to re return home. He's scanning the horizon even in hopes that one day he'll see his son upon it. And this day he does see him. And he has compassion. And again, we're, we're shocked. Another surprise in the story by what we hear. Uh, New, New Testament scholar Craig Blomberg explains. He says, no self-respecting Middle Eastern male head of an estate would have disgraced himself by the undignified action of running to greet his son. Older men in the ancient world did not run. 
Some things haven't changed, right? <laughs> I don't know. Nor would he have interrupted his son's speech before a full display of repentance or instantly commanded such a luxurious outpouring of affection for him. Right? This is extravagant. This is surprising, shocking, unexpected, completely. He runs to him. Again, even today, again, picture Grandpa running. I don't know, just, we, it's not common. And, and he doesn't even let him prepare his speech. He cuts him off, and he says, no, we're going to pour out these lavish gestures, get the best robe, verse 22 says. That would have been his father's own robe, most likely. Get the best robe, put it on him. Get the ring. The ring likely would have been a seal, a sign of, of, of belonging to the family. Put the ring on him. The fattened calf. It's a calf that would have fed the entire village, an animal that would have been prepared and saved for, for a special occasion, a wedding, a son coming of age, some kind of whole village celebration. He says, now's the time we're going to use it and celebrate. See, some of us wonder, how will God treat me if I come home? I've been away. I've been doing my own thing. I haven't cared much or thought much about the Lord, to be honest. And so if I come home, first of all, will he let me? Second, if he does, will I have to, to work my way back, earn his love, you know, be on some kind of good obedience plan before I get the blessings of being home? I mean, he'll let me in the church, but I have to sit on the back row. But here, we get this clear picture of God's heart. And he's longing for his children to come home. Even though we have sinned. And our offense against God is serious. We've turned from him. We've brought shame. We've offended a holy God. He still has a heart of compassion and is longing to forgive to extend mercy and grace if we would come home. And all of Luke 15 shouts this message, right? We heard the first two parables of it read aloud. God wants his lost sheep to be found and come home. The lost coin is sought after and found, and then there's rejoicing, and now a lost son. So again, if you relate with the younger son in the story... Maybe it, it's not uh, very difficult to imagine for you uh, that life isn't going well. There have been some bumps. There's some shame in your story, some things you're not proud of, some places you've been, some things you've done, some things in your past. You think, you know what, to get back, religion is going to tell me, and I've got to prove that I'm worthy, and I'm going to come in and I'm going to be judged by all these religious people, and I'm going to have to, you know, uh, earn my way and, and jump through the hoops and keep the rules. And if I could do that good enough, maybe, maybe God will be gracious to me. But the father says no. Right when his son comes home, immediately, best robe, family ring, fattened calf. This son is home and we need to celebrate. Do you believe that? That your Father in heaven is eager to welcome you home? 
And when you get home, he's not going to say, hey, first, before I let you in the house, we're going to run down this list of all the things you've done, and we're going to talk about it. And if you're really repentant, and you show me for a few weeks and months that you're serious, then we'll have the talk about that family ring getting put back on your finger. No. Because we're welcomed home, what, through the sacrifice and the finished work of Christ on the cross. His perfect righteousness applied to us by faith. So that at the moment of faith, at the moment we believe and trust, we are welcomed home as sons and daughters. Now, it would not be unusual for us today to expect the story to end here. Right? God loves sinners and welcomes us home when we return to him. Sometimes we say, hey, this parable is great. Jesus is trying to warm the hearts of wayward sinners. Now, his parable certainly does that. But I would argue that's not the main point of the parable. But wait, there's more. Lean in. Keep going to understand what's really going on here in the context. Again, those are true points we've seen so far, but there's more. The heart of it is still ahead. We have to realize first a couple things. First, the context. Jesus is telling the story, but who is he telling the story to? Wendy read it at the start of chapter 15, verse 1 through 3. It says this. Look at who he's talking to. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees... And the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Or this trio of parables, we could say. And he launches into the story about the coin and the lost sheep and the lost son. And so notice what sparks this teaching Jesus is hanging out with sinners, and the religious people don't like it. Jesus is, is welcoming tax collectors and sinners around him, welcoming those with a questionable background. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, don't like it. He shouldn't be doing that. If he was truly a holy man, a rabbi, a teacher, he would know that by being near them, he's going to become unclean. He shouldn't associate with people like that. See, the Pharisees, they were highly respected. They were pious and devout and known for being very serious about their faith. And they're saying, not on our watch, Mr. Jesus. And they start grumbling and muttering about what he should not be doing. So the parable is directed at grumbling religious people. His primary audience is, is us longtime churchgoers, you could say. The people that read their Bibles, that go to church, that care about the truth. He's pointing the story at some of them who have gone wayward. And we see this when we meet the final character in the story. There's another brother, right? Another son. The man had two sons. Look at verse 25. We finally meet him. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. 
And the older brother became angry and refused to go in. Any older siblings in the house? Anyone the oldest here? Yeah? I'm the baby of the family. But you older siblings, have you ever been frustrated or bothered by the way your parents treat your younger siblings? Maybe. So when this older brother hears about his younger brother, the baby of the family, return home, who maybe he's always gotten special treatment, we don't know, and he hears your brother's home, he gets angry rather than rejoicing. And rather than celebrating, he refuses to even go into the party. It gets worse. Verse 28. Check it out. His father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. I mean, not only does he keep quiet and avoid the party, that would have been insulting enough to the father But then he's publicly bringing shame upon the father. Again, the father could have beat him for shaming the family and avoiding the party. But the father, in his grace and mercy, goes to the older son and pleads with him. Totally unexpected. Totally unprecedented. And even then, the older brother says, look, verse 1, look, look, you. No title, no, no honor, no father. Just look. Again, for that, he could have been disowned. What has gone so wrong in the older brother's heart? We're going to talk about it a lot next week, in full. But briefly, the older brother realizes, scandalized by his father's grace. My brother doesn't deserve this. Verse 29, I've been slaving. If anyone deserves a party, it's me. I stayed home. I work hard. I've never disobeyed. I've kept the rules. But what do I have to show for it? Meanwhile, my brother, who squandered your wealth and made you out to be a fool, by the way, comes home and he just gets a party? And what we realize about the older son is that his heart is just as far from the father as the younger son's. And so really the parable, the story, it's about two lost sons. It's about two ways to be lost. Tim Keller put it this way, here then is Jesus' radical redefinition of what is wrong with us. Nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules, like the younger brother. Jesus, though, shows us that a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate, immoral person. See his point? The older brother was obedient, worked hard, stayed home, went to church, did his quiet time, had the outward appearance of having it all together, doing what he was supposed to be doing, jumping through the hoops, and yet below the surface, the older brother's heart was just as distant from the father. The older brother was keeping the rules, but not because he loved his father. It was because he wanted control over his father. 
That's how the math works, right? If I do this, I keep the rules, I jump through the hoops, then you owe me. You owe me a party, you owe me a goat to celebrate with my friends. So he's performed, he's, he's worked for it, he's earned his way, he deserves the celebration in his mind. So realize there's two ways to be lost, and actually in this story there's two restless sons. One left, but one stayed home. And here's why, another reason, some of us are exhausted. We haven't left home and, and done the reckless, wild living thing. And there's, there's not maybe a lot of external things that people could point to. And look at how they've made a mess of their lives. And yet, we're exhausted. And we're, we're bitter about uh, the things we don't have that we deserve. And we, and we go to church and we jump through the hoops. And, you know, we don't go to prison or whatever. And we don't abandon our families. And yet, our hearts are far from God. And we don't experience the deep joy and rest and peace and contentment that he offers us. I mean, isn't it so exhausting to play the church game? It's exhausting. I've been there. I've done it. I see too much of myself in the older brother. And the reason this is so dangerous is because with the younger brother, it's so obvious, right? He, he, he got up and left home. Reckless, wild living. His life's a mess. It's so easy to see for him and whoever else. Oh, but the older brother, his disobedience, his lack of love for the father, it's buried. It's buried under layers of, of morality and, and rule observance and performance. It's so dangerous. And so we have to pray, Lord, would you help me see Help me see the depths and the reality of my heart clearly. Because if we don't think we're sick, we're not going to go to the doctor. And so the answer for both brothers is, is the gospel. What the younger son and the older son alike need is to be reconciled to their father. They need the good news of Jesus. They need to be forgiven of their sins through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Older brothers and younger brothers alike need to be rescued from sin and death, need to be truly reconciled to the God who loves us. And here's the radical shift. It's, it's not through performance or works that we're reconciled to God, but it's through faith in what he has done. And that's what each brother needs to hear, right? God's love and grace are gifts to be received, not rewards to be earned. And too many of us think we have to do things for God before we can simply be with God. But the invitation is to come and simply be with God because he, the Lord Jesus, has already done the work. <laughs> and so the invitation is to come. Whether, whether you're a, a younger son, a younger brother who needs to come home, or you're an older brother who stayed home but hasn't really embraced the gospel and you don't really love your father, there's invitation. Would you receive the invitation to rest in the father's love? Again, we're going to spend two more weeks unpacking the depths of this parable, but we're stop, we'll stop here for this morning. 
And we're going to stop and kind of close with an invitation to respond where we are going to take the elements of communion as a church family together.